I start with a very simple idea, and that is that the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. The gospel is, by its very nature, an intrusive message. It is a glorious intruder. It steps in and it brings radical transformation, radical challenge, radical change. And that's why I say the gospel changes everything. It's not just a message that we confess. It's not just a change of world vision because of an ideology that we come to embrace. But when you really look at the gospel, when you look at the very nature of it, the intention of it, it's designed to intrude, it's designed to transform, it's designed to come in and shape the whole of life. I mean, this is really why Paul even says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. What he means is it's the power of God to bring salvation into a person's life. And in that salvation, it's not just a change in position. It's a change of everything. It's a change of all priorities. It's a change of disposition. It's a change of how we face life, do life, how we cope with life. It changes everything. And I cannot stress this enough. That it's all about Jesus, it's all about the gospel, it's all about what he wants to do. That he wants to change lives and change priorities, and he does that through this message. And we've seen that through this series. He changes the individual person, and from that gives them a whole new way of doing life. He changes marriages and says, here's how it's to be. He changes our parenting, he changes us as far as how our home dynamic works. All of these things flow out of the gospel of grace that transforms. But what it also changes and what it also affects is our interaction in the world. In other words, the gospel isn't simply about me, right? It's not simply about my well-being or my personal contentment or my spirituality, though all of those things are also embedded into the gospel because it changes everything, but it also changes how I face my world, how I see my world, how I invest into my world, what I desire for my world. That is all a part of the gospel also. In particular, for those of us who follow Christ, it means that I look at my faith and I don't just say, my faith is for me, but rather I say, because faith is so transformed me, I want to take that faith and I export it. I export it into the world around me. I am a changed person seeking to share with those who are seeking change and they're not sure where to find it. I mean, that's really much of what Christianity is all about. It's expressed, it's exported, it's given, it's shared, it's passed along. That means it's about mission. It's about mission. And we have the opportunity, we have the joy, we have the privilege of being on mission. And what this really means for us is that our faith is not fundamentally just in here. And to export our faith means we have to go beyond in here with our faith. We have to take our worship, take the word, take our relationship with God, and we take it out of this place, right? 
Our faith is a faith of the marketplace, not simply the pew. And, and when you look at the life of Jesus, you see this. We, we've mentioned this before as a church. When you look at the Gospels and people came to Jesus, where did they bring the sick, the hurting, and the needy? To the marketplace. Because Jesus was in the marketplace. Rarely did they bring them to the synagogue, not that they never did it, not that Jesus didn't sometimes go there and do some things, but predominantly the reputation of Jesus was, well, if Jesus is in town, you're going to find him in the marketplace. Why? Because faith was meant for the marketplace. It was meant for the real world. It was meant to be brought to those who are hurting. That's why Jesus says, hey man, who needs a physician? The sick, the hurting the seeking, the confused, the downtrodden, the angry and don't know why, depressed and can't figure it out. I mean, that's who needs the gospel because it will change everything. You look at the example of the apostles. What did they do? They went to the marketplace. I mean, they directly shot into that location because they knew that that's where the gospel needed to be. That's why I say mission may begin in here as far as what we know, what we learn, who we worship, why we worship, what God intends for us. But then it needs to spill out of here and go out there. It needs to go out there for it to to be robust and full and by design. And so that's why as we go through this series, we think about essential mission. Taking faith to the real world. And see, it makes sense to me because think about how much of our life is lived in the real world. Go back to last week with our gumballs, right? I mean, really, life in the context of Christian fellowship, grouping or regrouping, is a relatively small amount of time in comparison to how much we're in the marketplace, I mean, every day is 24 hours. One-third for sure is lived in the marketplace in some capacity. Whether you're an employee or an employer or manager, whether you're a student or a teacher, whether you're a player or a coach, whether you're a volunteer or a coordinator, we live life out there quite a bit. No wonder what Jesus says to us is, and take your faith with you out there where it can be seen, where it's needed. Where those who need to hear of Jesus hear through us. Right? That's what mission is all about. That is what our calling is all about. And so in short, we're called to use our time intentionally. Intentionally. Not haphazardly, not with the blinders on of just getting through life, but we look at every single day, we look at every single hour as opportunity, as a chance for investment. But we do it in the real world. We look at our real world and we say, well, all right, well, I want to live intentionally in society. I want to be a part of the world's institutions. I want to make sure I speak its language, know its culture, make that investment. I want to take on and be okay with the good values of my culture. But I do so intentionally with an agenda. And the agenda is the gospel making sure that all of what I do is not just for me or because it's what's expected 
or it's just how you live life. You just have a job. You just go to school. You just help your community, and, and, and that would be the scope of it. No, we realize that all of those things are hooks in the water attached to the line of the gospel, right? That's what it's about. That's what life is all about. And so our focus chiefly is something you see on our website. Our focus is first to redeem the parts of culture that can be used for the glory of God. It's to receive the parts of culture that are for the glory of God. And it is to reject the parts of culture that attempt to divert people away from the glory of God. All those things are true. Right? In other words, in a strange sort of way, we have this, this mentality sometimes where we say, I, I want to segregate life between secular and sacred. Well, that's not true. There is no segregation of secular and sacred. If you are in Christ, your life is sacred, lived in the secular, secular realm. You, you can't subdivide that. You are a holy person. You are sacred in that sense. But your calling is to be in the secular for the glory of God. To promote the redemption of God. Right? So it is a profound opportunity. It is an essential truth. And so today, like I said, we look at essential mission. In fact, for the next two weeks, we're going to look at essential mission. And we could say essential mission is also known as bringing Jesus to the marketplace of ideas. Bringing Jesus to the marketplace of ideas. That it's not simply about in here, but it's about out there in a very bold way, in a gracious way, in a real way, in a way where we have really connected with Jesus. So, with that said, if you have a Bible or have an app, you can open it up to the book of Titus right now. Titus chapter 2. Believe it or not, we have been in a study of Titus, plus some other places, um, for a, a while. And we're getting toward the end of wrapping that up uh, today. And next Sunday, we'll be finishing the book of Titus and moving on to some other things but we're looking at Titus chapter 2. Just looking at verses 9 through 10, we'll also jump into uh, Colossians today and a few other places. But I start off what it says with what it says there in, in Titus chapter 2. Right? He, he's talked to older men and younger men and older women and younger women, and now he gets to bond servants or slaves. And he says in verse 9, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, one of the first things that your mind might flash to when this comes up is the issue of slavery or servanthood in this sense. And you may go, well, what do we do with that? And how does that apply? Well, we're going to get into that next week. We'll actually get into how uh, the New Testament writers, the apostles, even Jesus, dealt with unjust issues in their culture. We'll address that next week. I think it'll be fruitful for us as we deal with some of those social, moral complications in our culture and the best way to address those for the sake of the gospel. We'll get into that next week. This week, what I want us to focus on isn't so much the particular of slavery and masters, but I want us to see the application of this, the principle of this, which is almost all of us, in some way, are under supervision. Right? We all are under supervision at some level. Right? You're an employee, you're a student, you're a player, you're a volunteer. 
Even if you say, I'm an executive, I'm a boss. Well, you may have shareholders or board members or simply the economy itself controls you more than you control it, right? So uh, whatever it is, we all at some level are under authority, under supervision. And, and, and so in this, we are encouraged with some words, right? We want to understand, what are we supposed to do? And how does the gospel play out as we are under this authority or supervision in our world, right? What's the most effective way for me to use my time for God's glory? That's the point. That's the big idea of today. And so it starts with what do we do in the missional marketplace, right? That's the first place I want to go. What is it that we're supposed to do? And that's really what Paul says there in verse 9. Modern servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. Now, this word submit isn't new to us, right? We, we, we saw this in the essential design part of our series. As we looked at all Christians are to submit, we've looked at how wise are to submit in certain ways. We've, we've seen all of that. And that becomes true of all of us when it comes to how we operate in the marketplace. The idea of submission is to willfully own the fact that there is an order to things in life and we embrace the order. We don't resist the order. We don't fight the order. We don't give the finger to the order. We don't have an attitude toward the order. We say, I embrace the order. That's submission. It's seeing the big picture and saying, I see value in the big picture. So I embrace the order. Why do we do this? First of all, it displays service. A servant's heart, which is one of the fundamentals of Christianity, that it's not all about me. I know as Americans, we struggle with that because we have rights and we have privileges. And it is sometimes about me. Give me liberty or give me death. By that, let me kill you instead of me so I'm free. Right? I mean, it's like that. And so sometimes we struggle with the idea of submission because, again, it requires service servanthood. It's not about the position I can have, but it's about me lowering my position of heart and disposition for the sake of others. That's, that's a difficult value to live out. The other thing about submission is that it displays self-control. It's not about my emotional state in the moment. I mean, really, that's the toughest part about self-control, right? It's controlling how I'm feeling in the moment. But to submit, to give myself, to think in terms of what it means to truly be missional as a servant, I realize it's self-control. But both of these things, service and self-control, exist for a reason, and that is credibility. I mean, the very reason we would take this attitude on, have this disposition that says, I am here to submit, to embrace the order, to serve and be self-controlled, is so that I have credibility in the eyes of those around me. When they look at my life, when they look at our lives, when they look at what Christianity is, they say, man, those people are credible. Because they actually do what they say. They stand out, you ready? They stand out by not standing out. Right? That's the uniqueness of submission. Where somebody says, wow, that, 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 there's just something about that person. And it's not that they're trying to be showy or flashy or have these big signs that say, check me out. They, they don't do that. They just they stand out because they don't stand out. They just do the right thing in right ways and they're consistent and dependable and reliable. And boy, there's value to those things. 
And so how does Paul say we do this, right? How do we fulfill mission in the marketplace? How do we have this sense of, of, of servanthood mentality to submit ourselves? Well, there's a list that Paul gives. And that leads us into how we do it in the marketplace, right? How do we live out this submission in the marketplace? Whether it be as an employee, a player, a student, or a volunteer, right? All of these things apply, Right? We're talking about all of us. I'm not just talking about people that go and punch in at an occupation and that's the only thing we're dealing with. No, we're dealing with all of it. That pretty much means all of us in some way. Right? How do we do this? What is the list of things that Paul gives us? Well, he says, starting in Titus 2, he says, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. And then in Colossians 3, he says, not by way of eye service as people-pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. He says, whatever you do, work heartily. See, what I love about this is that there's actually two facets to the list. There are actions, and then there are attitudes. And we have to embrace that if we're looking at the world missionally, and we want to leverage the gospel with our lives by living in such a way that we bring uh, the sense of, of notoriety to the gospel, we point to the gospel with our lives, then both the actions and the attitudes must be true. They must. And you know what this is like, right? You might meet a person, and they have all the right actions, but they have a very poor attitude. Are they a blessing in your life? No. They're not, man. I remember years ago, I worked with this dude named Dominic. The guy was smart. The guy knew the job better than anybody. But if I went to Dominic, I'm like, hey, there's a person, they, they need to talk to you about this. He would do this, oh, right? And he would just, you're like, oh my gosh, this is going to be brilliant. You know what I mean? And, and it was just, just, the guy was just kind of a curmudgeon. Now, I really liked the guy when I didn't ask him for anything, right? And, and, and again, wealth of knowledge. Very helpful on the information side. He could do the actions well, but the attitude was so unpleasant, so unpredictable, not knowing what you were going to get, not knowing if you were being an inconvenience every time you asked him for something. You didn't really want to go to that guy. And so that's important for us as people of faith, as we live in the real world, if we have great aptitude. And our actions can be impeccable, but our attitudes are not great. We're not friendly. We're not safe. We're not approachable. People kind of go, I don't want to talk to that dude because he's a freak. Right? If we do that, not good. Not helpful. Right? I, I mean, oddly enough, um, we prefer good attitude, but maybe not delivering on action as much more than really good action, but doesn't deliver on attitude. When it comes to faith issues and looking at a person's life to see how Christian they really are, right? I mean, attitude plays a big role. And so in the marketplace, we want to make sure, man, I have good action and good attitude. Both matter. On the flip, if you have great attitude, but your actions aren't great, you don't have a high aptitude, well, that could be a little bit irritating too. Like I was talking to somebody this week where they're saying, you know, I'm struggling with whether I'm going to keep an employee. Um, they're awesome. They're great. A great Christian. They're just not good at their job at all. And I don't know what to do with that because they're, they're such a neat person. They're such a great Christian. But pretty much we keep whittling their job down to, all right, just look at the screen. When it flashes red, tell us. You know, like, 
Because that's, and even that, they mess up, you know. They're colorblind or something, I don't know. But, you know, it's like, well, that's not good either. So both the actions and the attitudes are going to matter. We want to make sure we care about both our actions and our attitudes. And so we break down the attitudes first. Whether we're an employer, or rather an employee, or a player, a servant, student, volunteer, whatever it is. We want to do these things. And the first thing is to be well-pleasing. Well-pleasing. And and real simple, what this means is, uh, find out what the expectations are. Right? What is it somebody expects of you? If you're a player, uh, they expect you to be at practice. They expect you to be at games. They expect you to hustle. They expect 100% out of you. Uh, They expect you to keep your your uniform clean, young men. Keep your uniform washed. Uh, Don't have your mommy do it. You do it even. That's good responsibility, right? So make sure you know the expectations and you fulfill them. Or if you're an employee, that you understand this is what the job is and you fulfill it. You meet or exceed expectations. Right? And this is true all the time. Now some of you, you'll have a well-paying job and so you know the value of this. And some of you, you're in some select sports league and so you know the value of this. But some of you go, you don't know my job. My job is, you want fries with that, right? So... You go, do I have to meet or exceed expectations? Yes. This is so important for those who have jobs where they go, I hate my job. My job is unfulfilling. My job lacks dynamic. My job, I've hit the ceiling. There's no place else to go. It's in those jobs especially that we must be well-pleasing. Because the reality is, if you have what you consider to be a menial job, everybody that works with you also feels their job is menial. You want to stand out from the pack? Be well-pleasing. This is also true for volunteers. Sometimes people volunteer, and the attitude is, you get what you pay for. Right? I'm doing this for free, man. I'm giving up my time. Right? I mean, that's the attitude sometimes in volunteerism. In other words, instead of saying, I'm going to know what the expectations are and meet or exceed, my first attitude is, hey, I'm doing you a favor by showing up. And that sends a message. Especially if we're volunteers in the name of Christ, but our attitude is, hey man, I'm not getting paid for this. It sends a message. And so Paul would say, man, if, if you want to really leverage things well in your actions, be well-pleasing. Meet or exceed expectations. If you agree to do X, whatever X is, do it well. Do it well. Take it seriously. Right? Because you're leveraging that for the gospel. That's the whole heart behind it, of being well-pleasing. Another thing it says in the actions is to not be argumentative. To not be argumentative. And I would say to not be argumentative with those in charge and to not be argumentative with those you work with or serve with or play with or, you know, whatever it is you have to, you know, whatever crowd you have to run with. Right? Don't be argumentative. Literally what Paul is saying is don't talk back or talk behind their back or stir up trouble. Right? Don't try to undermine others for your own gain, for your own purposes. If somebody hurts your feelings, don't go running to HR, right? I mean, don't do that. That's what it's like. Going to HR, I'm going to HR. 
Right? Honestly, nobody likes that. Nobody. You don't like it when others do it. Now, I'm not saying there isn't some really important things, but boy, we can be really petty. We can. And so we say, man, I'm, I'm not going to get caught up in the office drama. I'm not going to badmouth my boss. I'm not going to write sketches with them with horns. I'm not going to do that. Right? I'm not going to blog angrily about how big of a jerk they are. Because everybody sees that. All right, don't do that. Don't put on Facebook while you're at work. My boss is an idiot. All right? Because he's on Facebook too. We all know it, right? So don't do it. Because again, you're leveraging your credibility, right? You're wanting to do right things in right ways. Don't be a know-it-all even. That's sometimes the problem, right? Uh, We kind of work maybe in a cohort or a group or a team at the office, and our attitude is everybody here is an idiot. And we're the know-it-all. Or at school, we're the know-it-all. Man, do ourselves a favor and don't talk behind the back, which is really what this means. Much less talk back to, much less be a know-it-all, much less be argumentative. It's important. Another thing Paul says is, don't pilfer. Great word, pilfer. I use it all the time. Um, Are you pilfering the cookies, Grayson? Yes, I use it a lot. Um, Pilfer literally means to put aside for oneself. To misappropriate. Right? That's to pilfer. And we will all say, I'm not a thief. But at some point we all are. All of us are thieves at some juncture. If you're a student, you're not a thief until you need those last five algebra problems just before class. Let me just look at your paper, man. Come on, really, dude. Let me look at your paper. When I was in high school, I didn't need the last five. I needed the full 30, all right? So I'd be like, really, dude, really quick. Just let me, just give me five minutes, man. Let me just look. Let me look, you know? And that's probably why I had a point four. Um, it's the truth, all right? So you're doing the math one. How do you even get that low? I had skill, baby. Um, but that's stealing, right? That's stealing. And, and if we're looking at our friend at school that we want to reach for Christ, but we're saying, hey, give me the answers, we're losing credibility. We're losing credibility, right? Maybe it's other things. Maybe it's stuff. Maybe it's taking software from work or supplies from work or equipment from work in some way. It could be that where we're stealing, pilfering, if you will. It can be other things. One of the, the, the most challenging is time. We steal a lot of time. I mean, how, how honestly could we say, yep, I did 40 hours work for 40 hours pay. Uh, my teacher said that I needed to read for a half an hour a day, so I read for the full 30 minutes stealing time. Maybe we're in the break room and the 15-minute break stretches into the 22-minute break. Stealing time. Because somebody else is paying you for that time to accomplish certain things. Right? And and here's the thing I've noticed about uh, supervisors and bosses. They always know when you're doing it. And most of the time, they don't say it. I remember talking to a manager I had years ago about that. And, and we were in the office or whatever, and, and he was kind of just saying in general his biggest frustration. 
But he's like, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, and her, they, they just take longer breaks. It's like, I'm not going to tell them, but you know what? They're not going beyond their positions either. They notice. They're watching. They're aware when they're t- being taken advantage of. And so, as people of faith, all the more we want to do that. In fact, I'll even tell you a place where I was guilty of that. And I was confronted by that same manager. Right? Uh, and, and he confronted me in the worst way. He didn't sit me down and say something. He just yelled through the break room. Right? That was awesome. And, um, no, and, and here's what it was. My, my intentions were really good. When, when, when I was interning and, and working in the real world, uh, I had a real heart to see everybody I worked with come to Christ. I mean, it was really important to me. So I brought my Bible to work. I had it in the break room with me all the time. I looked for every opportunity to cast the line in the water. I was just very passionate about this. And so I was always looking for a chance. And if I could start a conversation, man, that, you know, I was going to bring that fish in, baby. You know, so really, really important to me. But what would happen is that 15-minute break is not enough to ha- talk about heaven, hell, life, death, and all things spiritual reality, right? So you're limited. You need 22 minutes, right? So um, it's going to close the deal with that other seven. So um, I would keep talking and sharing. Oh, man, you should come to church. And, and, and my boss was noting that, wow, this guy really cares about his faith, but it's eaten into business time. And so finally one day he's like, hey, Boswell, stop being a holy roller and go stack those boxes. Yeah, that's awesome, right? And, and I remember, like, just being really ashamed. I'm sitting here trying to reach this person for Christ, and I'm not even doing my job. And I did. I remember just going and, oh, stack the boxes, right? You know, um, just feeling like just just guilt and like i've blown it my witness is shot and i don't think it was shot but boy it was convicting and it reminded me that even if it's for something as important as the gospel but i'm not fulfilling my commitments to doing my job well and on time i'm stealing and god would have me do that a little bit differently so not pilfering he also says Showing all good faith. Showing all good faith. Basically here the motto is that of the Marines. Simplify. That's all he's saying. Simplify. Always faithful in all things. You're always reliable. Always dependable. Always trustworthy. When somebody says who's the go-to person on this, they think of you. Who do I want to go to to get this task done? Who do I want to go to to deal with the problem? Who do I want to go to even just to talk about some issues? You become the go-to. Whether you're a volunteer, a student, a player, an employee, doesn't matter. You're the go-to. Because you are, simplify, you are always faithful. And they know it. And trust me, your boss, your manager, your supervisor, your coordinator, your coach, your teacher, whatever it is, they take note. They're always looking. I know as a leader, I am constantly looking for the faithful. You can't help it if you lead anything. You are looking for those who rise to the top and go above. That's what you're looking for. And not everybody wants to do that. And you notice that too. You notice that too. And so we take these things seriously because, again, it leverages the gospel. Paul goes on. This gets into Colossians chapter 3. He says, we do this not by way of eye service as people pleasers. 
Now, I'll tell you where this begins. This idea of eye service and people-pleasing, it begins mostly for males in high school in P.E. Right? Here's what I remember about P.E. Coach Casper comes into the gym. Hit the deck, boys, hit the deck. Right? So we all get down in our push-up position, starts counting them off. One, two, three, and he's looking at you. Four, five. He turns around, looks, everybody stops. Right? He's counting six, seven, Hey, you're still at four, right? A couple of dudes, they're even like knee on the ground, you know? They have like fifth row, you know, they're doing that, uh-huh. And then when the coach turns around, everybody, whoa, yeah, oh yeah, you know. Eye service, right? When coach is watching, you perform. When coach is turned around, you stop. When coach gets to get a donut, you stop and you make fun of him for the fact that he should be out here doing the push-ups because he's got a big belly because he doesn't do push-ups. He eats donuts, right? So, criticism, eye service. But it's people-pleasing eye service, right? And so we learn this early on. Kids learn this with parents early on. Don't you do that again. Parent turns around, right? (laughs) Same thing. Totally the same thing. Women, when they're not getting along, they're all pleasant. Yes, you betcha. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, love you too. They turn around. Right? It's all the same. People pleasing. I service. Right? Saying one thing, doing another, wanting to look good, whatever it is. And so as those of faith, those who represent Christ, we need to make that conscious decision, that that sense of, you know what? Um, I'm making sure. That my intent, my focus is not to be noticed, but to be effective. To not just be praised, but to be productive. Which means when they're gone, when they're not around, I do it just as well, just as hard, just as focused, just as, uh, as with much as in, uh, the intensity uh, when they're present, as when they're absent. That's what I do. Because I don't really do it for them. I do it for him. I mean, that's the idea. I don't do it for them. I do it for him. Or if I'm doing it for them, it's so that they can know him. Right? That, that's the idea. So I want to make sure that it's not just eye service, where I'm not just wanting to pat on the back and get the praise from my boss, whatever else. It's, it's something deeper and more important. It's being a non-just pure people pleaser, which is Paul's concern. We know people pleasers. Some of us work with them or go to school with them. They're suck-ups, right? I mean, that's what we even call them. We're like, oh, that dude's got a brown nose, you know what I mean, right? Suck-up, brown nosers, always schmoozing the boss, but they don't deliver on the side. In fact, the way they get ahead is through talk, not action, right? By, by, by really making the boss puffed up and feel good, but they don't necessarily have the productivity that matches what they're saying. I mean, that's the whole idea. But for us, we say, you know what? I want to make sure I make an impact more than I simply make an impression. An impact. Not just an impression that's hopefully good, that gets me ahead because I'm sucking up. Now, does it mean that it's wrong? to want people to be pleased. Well, no, I mean, even go back to the way Paul started off in, in Titus, well-pleasing. Well-pleasing is a good thing. But what it comes down to is motive. Do I want to please people for my own ends? 
Or do I want to be pleasing to people for God's ends? I mean, that's the fundamental difference. And, and let me just tell you a simple secret. All right? You take this away today, you're going to do really well in life. Um, if your ambition is to please men, then here's the deal. You will forever be enslaved by men. If your mission is to please men, you will forever be enslaved by men. Because you're constantly going to worry about what they think. Did they notice? Did they see what I did? Uh, are, are they on to me? I'm trying to please them, please them, please them. Make me, them happy so I can get ahead. Make them happy so I don't get fired. Make them happy so I can have whatever I want to have. That enslaves. That enslaves. And so, we don't want to give in to people pleasing. We want to be well-pleasing. But for the sake of others, not for the sake of ourselves. To be faithful to Christ and therefore free of the enslavement of all men. That's why Paul says, man, focus on, on that. In fact, from that, it really takes us into the attitudes that we see in this text. Right? We've got the actions, but we also have the attitudes. The first attitude is sincerity of heart. Right? Where it's not just going through the motions, but there is this sense of, you know what, I, I really want to deliver. I, I, I really actually care. I want to take my responsibilities seriously. And so it's not just external, but there's a sense of even every day as you go off to practice or you go off to school or you go off to, you know, whatever your thing is, work or volunteering, or whatever, you're praying, Jesus, may this come from my heart. May this be an act that is legitimate. Chiefly for you. And to benefit others. Right? That's what we want in sincerity of heart. Another thing Paul says is that it should flow from fearing the Lord. A sense of reverence and awe, this idea that says, you know what, I'm more concerned today about disappointing Jesus than I am in disappointing my boss or my coach or my teacher or a coordinator for a volunteer program or whatever it is. Right? This shifts all of it from kind of this horizontal concern to a, a vertical sense of, of worship. And so that's why we, we say, man, I, I want to fear the Lord as I go about my business. I want to be sincere in heart as I go about my business. More than that, I want to be working heartily, literally from the soul, that means. With enthusiasm. With excellence. No matter what it is, it's like, whoo, would you like fries with that? Bam! Right? Enthusiasm. That's awesome. Right? We like the wax. Bam! With that. Even down to, woo, I'm writing code. I cannot get excited about that, but some of you can. Um, right? Woo, look at that, look at that. That means something to somebody somewhere, all right? So, enthusiasm. And excellence, man. Like, really, like going, I want to make this the coolest that it is. And here's my deal. As you pursue excellence, be gracious. Steve Jobs pursued excellence. And he was a jackwad, all right? So, I mean, really, like the guy just wasn't pleasant. But he knew excellence. And I'm saying pursue excellence, but have the attitudes that are pleasant. Right? So in this, it's all about right attitude and right action. You bring it all together. Whether you're an employee, a student, a player, or a volunteer. Right? You, you do it all for those reasons. Now, what if you're on the other end of the spectrum... 
What if you're a manager or owner, a boss, a supervisor, a foreman, something of that nature? Well, we see this in Ephesians and in Colossians, right? As far as how we do the mission in the marketplace as an owner, manager, coach, teacher, or coordinator, says masters, do the same to them. So what is seen in the servants, the slaves, the doers, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master is yours in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. What does this mean? I mean, if you have some responsibility to others underneath you, how should you act? How should you treat them? What tools should you use? Well, to kind of give you a sense of this, I want to bring out a classic clip. I love this clip. You need this clip. I needed this clip because it's been two weeks without football and I'm jonesing. Um, So uh, a great way to learn how not to manage people is uh, with what we want to show you now. When we asked Reebok to send us Terry Tate, some people thought we were crazy. But I'm a firm believer in paradigm breaking, outside the box thinking. Hey, buddy. Break was over 15 minutes ago, Mitch! And since Terry's been with us, our productivity has gone up 46%. We're getting more from our employees than ever before. You know you need a cover sheet on your TPS reports, Richard! That ain't new, baby! Hey, Terry. Hey, Janice! But what's really impressed me is how Terry's become part of the Felcher family. He fits right in here. I am an enforcer, man. Don't nothing go down in my house. It's 100% hard, baby. Sure, I jack a few fools. I give them the pain. But sometimes it's about intimidation, you know. <laughs> it's mind games. That's a long-distance call, Doug. To be honest, I wish Reebok sent us 10 Terry Tates. I just do my job, man. I do what my God-given abilities allow me to do, and I thank Jesus Christ for it every single day. And do I enjoy what I do? (laughs) Yeah, don't do that. Um... No, I mean, here's the deal. If on your door, on your business card, on the plaque of your desk, it says supervisor, manager, whatever it says, don't forget that that doesn't disqualify you from having to exercise the fruit of the Spirit while you do what you do. It's not like, well, sorry, this is just the expectation. I need to bring some fear. We need to bring some intimidation. We need to motivate through certain things. No, you can't just shelve your faith. Because you have a job to do. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't bring expectation and you can't do certain things that are are within the boundaries of what it means to represent your faith. You do represent your faith in that. And you represent expectation. And you have a job, and I'm sure you have a boss or a manager that wants you to accomplish certain things. But it means keeping firmly in mind that as a superior, if your faith is out in the forefront of your life, those people under you are going to be looking more critically at you and for that. 
And so you have these opportunities, these moments where you have to decide, am I going to be an intimidator or am I going to be a coach? Am I going to make sure that as this person leaves my office, leaves my classroom, leaves whatever it is, that they uh, were treated first and foremost by a believer who loves Jesus and loves what it is Jesus is accomplishing in the world? Or are they going to feel like, wow, that, that, that person just stopped kind of being a Christian <laughs> to deal with me? Right? That, that's that basic question we have to ask as we oversee people. Especially as we oversee people as missionaries. I remember uh, just a couple of years ago, about eh, three, eh, somewhere in there, three, four years ago, I had a person come to me and, and they really wanted to help me kind of in the leadership arena of church. And, uh, you know, they wanted to be a part of things and everything else. And we were just hanging out talking. And then they started talking about their life at work and their responsibilities and the people they oversaw. And they were sharing these things with me. And I think from the perspective of wanting to impress me by how they get things done, but it was clear the way they get things done was very harsh and very, uh, cut people off and, you know, very much kind of using intimidation to drive success. And I remember by the end of that conversation, my thought was, I don't hate our church enough to let that person be in leadership. If I hated y'all, oh man, associate pastor, you know, um, no. And again, good person, everything, not, not, it just, it was clear the, the, the place they lead from that wouldn't be the things that Jesus would be fully looking for. And so he says, no, man, you, you, you do the same to them. Stop your threatening, right? Stop being harsh. He says, treat your servants justly and fairly. What it means is you're more concerned about how they look than how they make you look. Right? Your concern is them, not, not you. Which sometimes is hard when they're not delivering, when the dude that's just supposed to watch the screen turn red, right, isn't fully delivering. It can be hard to accomplish that, but that's to be the focus. It's being more concerned about what happens to them and not just what they can do for you, right? I mean, that's the heart. That's the emphasis. That's the priority. It's sometimes real big to just kind of throw weight around when you have a leadership position, but it doesn't really motivate people in a genuine way. It creates fear as the motivator which will get things done. The video, hey, production's up 42%. Everybody's afraid they're going to be in traction, right? But as those who follow Christ, we motivate different, right? That's our goal. And it goes to why. Why do we live out this missional focus in the marketplace? Paul says, so that in everything, we may adorn the doctrines of God our Savior, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. See, we do all of this, all the attitude, all of the action, all of the investment, all of the care, all of the focus, all of the sacrifice, all of the selflessness, so that others shine and we don't have to shine and we stand out by not standing out. All of that is done to adorn the gospel. All of it is for that reason. And that's what Paul gets us to. This is why we do what we do for this, to adorn. Our lives, our actions, our attitudes, our reactions, our integration with our culture is to adorn the gospel. Right? And I love this idea of adorn. It's where we get the word cosmetic, which isn't very bro-like, I know. Um, but it's the idea of to, to highlight something in a more profound way. 
right? We think about adorning things. In fact, for the ladies in the house, we can bring up this first picture of uh, adornment. That's great adornment right there. You've got the queen mother and uh, all of the other wacky hats that were at the wedding, right? And all of those wacky hats were designed for one thing, which was to adorn the person for good or bad, all right? Um, but clearly calls attention. There is no question if you're wearing like a giant horseshoe um, on your head, you're going to have attention. All right. And, and, and that's what they did. Now, for the guys in the room, I know some of you are like, eh, this doesn't really do it for me. That's not adornment. So let's go ahead and bring up a decent man room. That's a good adornment right there. So just really praising the champions of a couple of weeks ago, right? But you go, that's a well-adorned room. Or we'll bring up the next one because we live in Duval, which is all about technology and weapons. Um, <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, you're like, now that is Far East Side, right? Microsoft and Glock, all right? So, um, and I notice on the top shelf, like, the dude has a lightsaber. I'm like, really? I'm like, ooh, more elegant weapon for a more civilized age. All right, so... Uh, you betcha. Um, right? But that's adornment. It's where you take something that's just normal and then you make it exquisite. You show it off somehow. You showcase it. That's the idea that Paul's getting at, right? We adorn the doctrine of our God who is our Savior. That's what we do by the way we live. Right? And that's really Paul's big idea. It's where we live in such a way that we get the world's attention. And when we have its attention, then what we share it's not about us. What you see in me isn't because of me. I don't work hard. I don't deliver. I don't come early and stay late. I don't make sure that people are cared for around me simply because I'm a good person. But because all of that showcases the teaching, the doctrine of a saving God. The gospel. The message that changes everything. It's all about opportunity. We do what we do for opportunity. And we should be looking for opportunity. We should get up in the morning and say, today is an opportunity. It's not just gut to make the donuts, right? Not that. It's I get to have opportunity. I have to go to school. I have early class. It's an opportunity. I have to go to practice today. I'm so tired. It's an opportunity. All right? It all comes back to opportunity. And then that opportunity, it's pointing directly to Jesus. Can I tell you, this is why I love Tim Tebow. I don't love Tim Tebow because he's a great football athlete, because he's not great yet. He's good. He's doing some good things. He's not a great football player yet. I'm, not, I'm certainly not a fan of the Broncos um, at all, right? Um, but what I loved about Tebow, what stood out to me, is that there was no question in my mind his chief priority Zero question. Like, there's other athletes that are Christian, and they give credit to Jesus, but you, you wouldn't fully know. It isn't like they say, this is the reason I exist. Clearly, unapologetically, definitively. But I watch that guy playing these games, and I'm like, he has one focus, and it's not football. It's Jesus. He wants people to know Jesus. He wants to showcase Jesus. He wants Jesus to be made much of and Tim Tebow to be me made little of. That was his focus. That's what made him stand out so much is that he didn't really want to stand out. He wanted Christ to stand out. And the reason so many people said, wow, we want to follow this and Tebow mania and all these crazy things and I've been Tebowed, you know, whatever it is, it's like he stood out because we, especially as followers of Jesus, I think we're so impressed that he was so unashamed, but he wasn't obnoxious. 
And he wasn't self-righteous. What he was was authentic. He was just real. Right? And it's not just on the field where he's like, bam, whoo, that's it. Then he goes off the field and he cares for people that are sick and hurting and people that are dying. And he gives his money to missionary endeavors. And we go, that guy's for real. Football's just a tool. It's just an occupation in the marketplace to point to Jesus. That's why we love it. For him, it's souls over touchdowns. For us, it should be souls over raises, souls over good grades, souls over wins on the field. Souls. Right? That, that's, that's what we embrace when we embrace Jesus. In fact, if anything, we remember for whom we do this. For whom. Paul says, it's as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. All of you that work at Microsoft, Steve Ballmer is not your boss. The shareholders are not your boss. Right? If you work for any company, the board is not your boss. Your manager is not your boss. If you go to school, the principal is not your boss. The teacher is not your boss. If you play a sport, the coach is not your boss. If you're learning an instrument, your teacher is not your boss. Jesus. Jesus is your boss. Jesus is my boss. Right? I have a board of elders that oversee me, but Jesus is my boss. That's the thing we embrace. That's the thing we own, that we work for him. And if we work for him and that is the focus, then our care is far more about being faithful than being successful. And we have far more capacity to be fulfilled in our faithfulness than to be fulfilled simply by being successful. There's a lot of people that are successful and not fulfilled. But if we are faithful, boy, we are filled up in that because we know we're working for Jesus. So when we go off tomorrow into everything that we do, understand that you're not just going off to school or practice or work or to, sh- to help in the community or whatever. Um, you're, you're going off into a context, into an opportunity. And so with that, you keep in mind, all people matter, so treat them all like they matter. And all activities matter. So do them well. But only one audience matters. Only one really matters. So work for Jesus. And do it well. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you again for your word. I thank you for the reminder of what it means to live life on mission. To go into the marketplace on mission. And I pray you would help us to do that, that our heart would be to be just proud of you in a normal, authentic way, not self-righteously, not obnoxiously, um, not in, in a way that's so foreign to the way we would normally communicate, but rather we would become comfortable with you, that we would dwell with you, and then go out into our world with the message that matters most, the message that changes everything. Give us opportunity, open those doors, may our conversations be seasoned with salt. And if there's some in this room this morning that have not begun that relationship with Jesus, this is your day, right? This is your day to say, Jesus, I need you. You've died for me. I surrender my life to you. 
I put that challenge before you today, to do it today. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. If you're here, you're hearing the gospel that Jesus died and rose to save us from from hell, from death, and to give us life and give us purpose in an eternal way. If you want to make that decision, you can make it right where you're sitting with a simple prayer that says, Jesus, I turn myself over to you. Forgive me for my sins. Thank you for your life. Beyond that, we encourage you to talk to anybody with a name tag that's around their neck and say, hey, I want to know more about this or this was the prayer I made. We want to hear from you. Jesus, I thank you for salvation. I thank you for your gospel. I thank you for the mission you've given us. May we be bold and courageous with great joy. In your name, amen.